Our second scripture reading is from Luke chapter 6. In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. The word of the Lord. The very earliest church in those first couple centuries shocked the culture around it. How? They mixed castes. The rich, the wealthy, and the slaves and poor ate together. And this was shocking to the culture around them. The other thing they did was they cared for the sick and the poor, especially caring for the sick and the poor that were not their own. Nobody did that in that ancient world. In our book, Surprise the World, Michael Frost quotes Emperor Julian, who was writing against the Christians when he said, they, the Christians, support not only their own poor, but ours as well. All men see that our people lack aid from us. He was complaining to the pagan priests that they needed to up their game because the Christians had been outdoing them in the sort of mercy and kindness that no one had ever heard of. You see, that early church was doing something that was radical because it was so different. They were mixing castes, caring for people that were not their own, and it made the culture around them want to know, what are you about? What is it that makes you tick? Who is this Jesus? Who is this God you keep talking about? And that's what Michael Frost is asking in the book Surprise the World that we've been looking at the past couple of weeks. What might surprise the world today? What might shock the world today if Christians actually did it? His argument is that caring for the sick and the poor would no longer shock. In fact, we must do that. That is what is expected of the church. And when we don't, it's not that we are not shocking the world by not doing it. It's that we're not living up to what is expected at the bare minimum. And the second is mixing of castes is, of course, not going to make any impact because the West today, courtesy of Christianity for several centuries, built the idea of human equality such that we, of course, would say it's right to mix people of different socioeconomic, racial, ethnic, political, any kind of background, it doesn't matter. But the world we live in in the West is shaped by a Christian worldview that said people are all equally human, equally valuable. So doing that, mixing races, castes, doesn't shock the world. We must be doing that. So how do you do it? How do you do something that might shock people around you, the culture around you? Michael Frost, in Surprise the World, identifies three areas. He talks about going in, going out, and going up, being driven into community, to one another, a kind of deep community. People are so transient today, they lack deep community. And if the church can display that, it will be something different than the world experiences by and large. A second is radical hospitality. That's why last week we talked about eating and the week before blessing people. A church that's pushing out and opening doors and saying, we want to be with people. 
And lastly, a thick spirituality. People who are developed in their upward, if you would, perspective. A spiritual thickness to our lives. We could take the words that he gave us and maybe reword them like this, being gospel-driven, externally focused, extended family. If we actually lived this as people, it would make a difference. If you actually lived this, if I actually lived this, it would make a difference. It would possibly shock the world. Today we're talking about the third one, the spirituality, and specifically how we listen to God and cultivate our spiritual garden, if you would. Now, in the modern world, we tend to be underformed spiritually. You know, the blight of chronic malnourishment is horrible, whether it's in poor communities in our own country or around the world. When you see chronic malnourishment, there are impacts, there are effects, if you would. You find that there is uh, kids grow up with chronic malnourishment are, are smaller, they have size and development issues, they hit puberty two to three years later, their brain does not develop at the same level and capacity as those who are well-nourished. And in the end, even their IQ is stunted. Chronic malnourishment is a horrible blight. In the West, we tend to have a lot of nourishment physically, but we're spiritually starved. Going back to the Enlightenment 400 years ago, the Enlightenment moved us forward in a lot of great ways, but some of the challenges of it push against spirituality. The Enlightenment said that only your reason matters, only the five senses, right? What you can see, what you can observe, what you can prove. That's all that really matters. That's all we can actually know. So the result of the Enlightenment after a couple hundred years was that the West valued the intellect, the physical, and the pragmatic, what gets things done. And that's the current culture that we live in is the result of the Enlightenment. What do we pursue as a culture and as people? We pursue academics and intelligence. We pursue beauty and body. And we pursue financial success because that pragmatically is the thing that works the best. The result is when you add on technology and all the productivity is that we are incredibly frenetically paced people doing a whole lot of things, filling our minds, fixing our bodies, producing lots of great things, and we're spiritually malnourished. And so people hunger for something. You know, the further we've gone into a secular culture, the more people still hunger for something spiritual, something that's beyond the five senses. But most people have no idea where to look or what they're even looking for. You know the closest thing to spirituality that we have in our culture today? It's entertainment. Think about it. Entertainment stirs your emotions. You're brought to tears because of a show. You're laughing because of a movie. You're angry because your team plays terribly. All those forms of entertainment move our emotions, and it almost feels spiritual. And it's also a great stress reliever. What do you do when you're stressed out by your frenetic culture? You tune out. It's a spiritual experience. 
but of course it falls short of touching the deep and eternal that's inside of us, that longs for something more. As Christians, we are not much different. Here's the challenge of many churches today. Many churches today are filled with programs and with education and even with entertainment. All those things can be good, but here's the, here's the problem is when we as Christians confuse programs, which basically means activities with discipleship, or when we confuse education, intellect, with spirituality. So I don't know if you're a doer or a thinker. If you're a doer, then your assumption is going to be the more stuff you're doing with your church, the more spiritual you are. If you're a thinker, which is what I am, the more theology I'm reading, the more spiritual I am. The challenge is when a church is filled with programs and education and activities and entertainment is that we become either consumers rating the programs our church has or we become theological snobs wondering why everyone else isn't reading what I'm reading. I've done the theological snob route. It's not great. I'm not sure where you are, but I know that our culture and our churches tend towards these things. And it's not that education or programs or even entertaining people is bad. It's that doing more of them, doing more of them does not make us more spiritual. It simply makes us more active. Michael Frost in Surprise the World wrote, the culture of many of our churches has been shaped by the busyness and activism of our contemporary culture, which causes us to associate mission with doing things. But unless we can spend significant time in the presence of the missional God, we are in danger of appearing no different to our frantic, harried, and busy neighbors. Simply doing more stuff is not going to shock the world. Seeking God might. What we need as Christians, as believers, and as humans is spiritual formation, not more church activity or doctrinal knowledge. Spiritual formation means becoming like Jesus or becoming Jesus-like. What if we, Christians, what if we, each one of us, earnestly sought God in our daily life? truly cultivated our spiritual life, seeking God in prayer and actually listening to His Spirit each week. And that's different than praying what we normally pray, which is, God, here's what I want. We often pray for things like our kids, our grades, a job opportunity, our health, and all those things are a necessary part of our prayer life. But it falls short of cultivating the depth of what God wants to offer us in a relationship with Him when we come simply to seek Him, to listen to Him, and to be moved forward by Him. But here's the challenge. If you do actually spend time seeking God and listening to Him, here's what's going to happen. He's going to draw you into Himself. You're going to get more of God than possibly you're looking for, and He's going to push you out in mission which basically means you're going to become more like Jesus. Think about what Jesus did. Jesus sought the Father. 
and was led by the Spirit. Jesus sought the Father and was led by the Spirit. We see this in Mark chapter 1, the episode that we just read. What happens is Jesus is ministering early on in Capernaum. Capernaum is his town that he lives in, and he's having great ministry success. He's preaching, he's healing. So much success, it says in verse 33, that the whole city, the whole city was gathered together at his door. Business was booming, and they could not stop. Till finally everyone goes to bed, they turn off the lights, they say, hey, come back tomorrow. But in the middle of the night, what does Jesus do? It says in verse 35, rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Jesus goes by himself to spend time with the Father praying. As soon as light hits, Peter comes looking for him. Jesus, they're lined up. We got to get this thing going. And Jesus, having spent time with the Father, having communed and been restored by the Father, is now being moved forward in a different direction. No, Peter, we're not going back to Capernaum. We're going to other cities. We're going to go to the rest of Galilee. Now, this is not a strategic decision. This is not a marketing idea. Hey, we need to, you know, kind of expand our base. We've got to hit a couple of new cities with new franchises. This is simply Jesus spending time with the Father, seeking Him, and then doing something that maybe wasn't even strategically wise, moving out in mission outside of Capernaum. He was attuned to the Father, following the Father. A similar thing happens in Luke chapter 6. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus is, the, is in the middle of ministry and is dealing with opposition, possibly for the first time, according to Luke. It says at the end of, in Luke 6, 11, that the Pharisees, the religious leaders, were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Now, if you read through the Gospels or if you've been in church for a while, you might have the idea that Jesus liked fights. But Jesus was human And most likely, he wanted to be liked and approved, just like every single person does. And here were his religious leaders, his own priests, if you would, his own pastors, and they want to get rid of him. Do you know how much stress he was probably under at this point? That wrestling with, why why do they not know who I am? Why are they against me? After a stressful day at work, what does Jesus do? He's finally facing opposition at work. Things aren't going as he wanted. What does he do? Does he go home and have a beer and kick on some Netflix? I just need to de-stress. What I really need is a good spiritual experience of a couple of hours of entertainment. That's what I might do. (laughs) What does Jesus do? In verse 12, we read of Luke chapter 6. He went out to the mountain to pray. All night he continued in prayer. To go out to the mountain means he was alone, away from distractions, to be with the Father in prayer all night, not for 15 minutes, not a now I lay me down to sleep, all night, seeking the Father. And when he comes back down, he has an entirely new direction. The very next thing that he does is he calls the 12 apostles. You see, there were dozens, 50, 100, maybe 200 disciples following Jesus, 
But after this time of prayer, he's directed by the Father to choose 12. The 12 represented the tribes of Israel, and Jesus, by calling the 12, was actually challenging the Pharisees even more, saying, we and my followers are the new Israel, the new way in which God has come and God is speaking and God's kingdom is being revealed. You have to imagine Jesus praying through that night and, and the Father giving him the names of the 12, James, John, Matthias, Peter, wait a minute. He knew Peter. He was probably like, Lord, are you sure? Father, do you really mean Peter? And what about when he got to Judas? Are you sure, Father? Nine to ten at night was probably the first ten disciples. Ten to midnight had to be all about Peter, and then midnight till sunrise had to be all about Judas. Would you ever have chosen your betrayer to be on your team? Do you understand you have to be in such communion with the Father that you trust Him with everything to step into something that makes no sense and is against every part of your being? It's not foolhardiness, nor is it just extreme courage. It is trust built on a relationship, recognizing the Father has the best in mind. Jesus is willing to follow him. We get this very clearly in John 5, 19, when Jesus, explaining his relationship with the Father, says, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise, for the Father loves the Son. I do nothing of my own, but only what I see my Father doing. Theologian and New Testament commentator D.A. Carson wrote, if Jesus had done otherwise, here's what it would have been. Independent, self-determined action would have set him up against the Father as another God. Not as the Son of God, as another God. Now, what do most of our lives look like? Independent, self-determined action set up against the Father. You know, we talk about sin that way. Often you think of sin as immorality, breaking the Ten Commandments, but this is the definition of sin, self-determined action without regard to the Father, setting yourself up as another God. Jesus would not do this. Jesus is the Son of God, but listen to what He is. Jesus is submissive to the Father. He is dependent on the Father, and he is obedient to the Father. James Edwards, another New Testament commentator, commenting on Mark 1.35 said, Amid a whirlwind of activity, Jesus seeks a still point in prayer with the Father. The work of the Son of God is both an inward and an outward work. Jesus cannot extend himself outward in compassion without first attending to the source of his mission and purpose with the Father. And conversely, it's his oneness with the Father that compels him outward in mission. Jesus does not promote an agenda, but derives a ministry from a relationship with the Father. You want to sum up what Jesus was about? Jesus sought the Father and was led by the Spirit. In prayer, he enjoyed communion and the love of the Father, 
And in prayer, he was driven out by the Spirit into mission for the world. Now, we aren't Jesus, but we do have the same Spirit, and we have the same access to the Father. Eugene Peterson wrote, The Holy Spirit is God's way of being present and active among us in the same way that He was in Jesus. If the Holy Spirit, God's way of being with us, working through us, and speaking to us, is the way in which continuity is maintained between the life of Jesus and the life of Jesus' community, that's us, prayer is the primary way in which the community, that's us, actively receives and participates in that presence and working and speaking. Prayer is our way of being attentively, attentively present to God, who is present to us in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is personal and relational and connects us to God. Do you know if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, God has taken residence in you. The Holy Spirit dwells in you, assuring you of God's love, connecting you to the Father. But the Holy Spirit, if He dwells in you, also moves you out in mission to love others so that they will love God. And you know, that's the challenge here too. When we're actually connected to the Holy Spirit through prayer, when we actually sense this and step into this more and more, here's what happens. You become less self-focused, less insecure, worried about your pleasure and your happiness because you're so filled with assurance of God's love for you. And the more you're dwelling in God's love for you, you know what happens? You get pushed out in love for others. Not loving others because it's the right thing to do, nor loving others because you'll get something back, which is what most of us do. It's our checklist of, well, I invited them over for dinner, so they now need to invite me back. Instead, you love others because you want them to know and experience God's love as you have experienced it. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. It will draw you in, and it will push you out. If we want to surprise the world, if we want to shock the culture around us, we don't need to be spiritual. We don't need spiritual lives. We need spirit-filled, spirit-led lives. We need to cultivate a spirit-led life, which is exactly what Michael Frost is talking about in the chapter on listening, which is the third thing. Our first was bless. Last week was eat. Third is listen. Listening to the Spirit draws us into a deeper relationship with God and will drive us out in love to others. It pushes away our self-focused nature. Frost writes, Fear and laziness will motivate you to come up with dozens of reasons why you can't open yourself to others. It is the voice of the Spirit that will help us resist our worst impulses. So if you've never actually done this this idea of listening to the Spirit, or if you've been a Christian for a long time and found it kind of difficult, Frost gives a couple of ways just to step into it. He says, first, set aside time, not just five minutes, ten minutes. Set aside a chunk of time in a week, and then do it again the next week. While you're there seeking God, eliminate distractions. 
things that will take you away from focusing on God. He talks about being in a very dark and quiet room. The third is to actively let God in through Scripture, through prayer, through song. And the fourth is to follow God's promptings as He explains His love for you and calls you out into mission to others. If you haven't read the chapter, go ahead and read it, and you can step into that. But even as I was reading the chapter, I was thinking through my own experience and thought, mine doesn't fit exactly the way Frost describes it. I don't do the um, seek God in a pitch black room with no, no noise at all. And so I asked a few people, and I thought about it myself, what are some things that are common for people who seek the Lord and hear from Him? One of the things that I think is true and that many people that I'd emailed with talked about was one of the things that's absolutely necessary to hearing from God on a regular basis is a deep foundation of the Bible. Knowing Scripture is necessary because it's often what the Spirit will call to mind and speak to you through. One person wrote, consistent regular time, consistent regular time reading Scripture and praying paves the way for those unique times of seeking the Lord and listening to the Spirit. But my own experience involves not only that, that regular time of, of seeking God through Scripture and prayer, but also setting aside specific times. Starting in high school because of a trip that I did, I learned what was called a solo, solo day. At least that's how I, I referred to it. It was a day all by myself, not just to feed me, but to seek the Lord. I used to do it hiking, camping. That sounds much too painful for me now. Now I do it sitting in comfortable environments. I seek the Lord sometimes out at a retreat center, um, Core Haven, which you guys can take access to. Sometimes I even do it in the city. Here's what I found. If I get away from my house and spend a whole day simply looking for God, that He comes and meets me. I don't do that solo day thing that often. What I often do is chunks of time, an hour to four hours seeking the Lord. And while Michael Frost talks about being in a black, dark room, I've found that where I seek and hear from God most commonly is when I'm on a long drive by myself, one to three hours, or when I'm sitting on my patio, eyes open, looking out at the world. Others that I talked with said that they hear from God when they're sitting in their front room looking out on the birds and the dog walkers. Another one said going for a walk themselves. A third person said listening to music. But ultimately, finding ways in your own life to remove distractions, but find a place where you can spend time with the Lord, expecting and patient, listening for Him. I've also found that God speaks to me as I'm in my constant dialogue with Him, seeking Him on a regular basis, even when I'm walking through my daily life. Jesus perceived in his spirit that the woman touched his cloak, right? In the same way, there's this great little passage that you've maybe never read or maybe passed over in the story of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a, taken into exile in the Persian kingdom. So he's in exile, and he's serving as cupbearer to the Persian king. He gets word that Jerusalem is still ransacked and the walls of Jerusalem are torn down, and he starts weeping and crying, fasting and praying, confessing the sins of his nation. Lord, what should I do? And then he has the conviction that he should ask to go back 
to Jerusalem to help rebuild the walls. Now, the problem with this is he is cupbearer to the king. And as cupbearer to the king, he has one job, and if he does, asks for anything else, he'll be executed. But he enters the king's presence one day, and he's downcast, which you should never be downcast in the presence of a king. They will get rid of you. But he's downcast. The king says to him, Nehemiah, why are you downcast? And what does he say? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king. Do you know what Nehemiah does not do? The king doesn't say, hey, Nehemiah, why are you downcast? Well, hold on a second. Let me go and pray for a few hours. Okay, now I've got something to say to you. What does he do? The king says, why are you downcast? And as he's talking, he's praying. I want to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. Oh, Lord, please let this be from you. (laughs) Do you know that you can seek God in the midst of a conversation? You can seek God at work. You don't even have to close your eyes and bow your head. Here's how I hear from God. It's the Lord working through my inner dialogue when I know that the Spirit is present because I'm seeking Him. You have a constant inner dialogue. Did you know that? You're doing it right now. I'm talking to you, and you're thinking about everything else. Try an experiment. For 10 seconds, let's stop thinking about anything. Ready? Go. Okay, did you do it? I was thinking about how long 10 seconds was. (laughs) I couldn't even think about not thinking. You know, Eastern spirituality says you need to empty your mind. Christian spirituality says you fill your mind, meditate on God, God's ways, God's word, God's purposes. You fill your mind. God works in our intellect. He works in our inner dialogue. He works in our imagination. Don't worry about trying to empty your mind so that you can hear the Spirit. Step into the way that God has wired you intellectually and say, God, enter my thoughts and guide them. Speak to me through my inner dialogue and assure me that it's you talking to me. And what I've found when I'm in the midst of seeking God for chunks of time or solo days is the main thing God brings to mind is other people, people to email, call, pray for, reach out to. I also find God works and gives me creative ideas that I hadn't thought of before. In the midst of seeking Him, the Lord brings to mind Scripture, hymns, prayers from the Book of Common Prayer, the reminder of who He is and what He has done. And every time I spend time seeking the Lord, I find that He assures me. Sometimes it's an overwhelming assurance of His hand on my life. Real peace is present. If you and I seek God, listening to the Spirit, He will draw us up into communion with Him, so that we experience the love of God. We will become deeply spiritual people in a spiritually malnourished world. But when you are also drawn up because you're listening to and seeking the Spirit, you will be driven out. You won't be a consumer Christian. You will not be a a theological snob. You will be a lover of people 
for the love of God. This spiritually malnourished world is hungry for God. It needs people who are filled and led by the Spirit. Let's pray. This is a prayer of self-dedication from the Book of Common Prayer. Almighty and eternal God, so draw our hearts to you, so guide our minds, so fill our imaginations, so control our wills by your Spirit, that we may be wholly yours, utterly dedicated unto you, and then use us, we pray, as you will, and always to your glory and the welfare of your people. Through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.